Well, I had a great joke plan, but it's, it's going to fall miserably because Chris Hartshorn's not here. And I was going to begin by saying, hi, I'm Chris Hartshorn. <laughs> That's who I want to be when I grow up. I want to be Chris Hartshorn. So I, I'm buying curly hats and, oh, well, you tell him I said that. Oh, well, anyway, there you have it. Okay, uh, so we're going to do a Q&A, question and answer. And uh, I'm going to begin by uh, ask, answering, ooh, I'm not answering that one. Um, I'll go ahead and read it, though. That'll make you feel like I at least took it seriously. Any thoughts on the Benedict option, Ron Dreher, and its effect on evangelism? All right, so uh, this is, a, if I understand correctly, and the questioner may want to clarify, uh, this is a book that's arguing uh, that the idea of certain aspects of Christian monasticism uh, were healthy, and in our, our postmodern and very post-Christian aggressive age uh, that this uh, way of living, sort of a monastic lifestyle, is worth uh, reconsidering. Hold on for just a second before we get going. Hi, I'm Chris Hartshorn. (laughs) Chris is my doppelganger. He's like, you know what a doppelganger is? Uh, in a German car, it's a gear that can kind of function as two gears. And so Chris, Chris is my West Coast version of myself, uh, my evil twin, right? So anyway, love you, Chris. All right, so uh, for whoever sent the question, um, if I did not uh, fairly represent the thesis of the book, this would be the opportunity to tell me you think so before I begin to respond to it. Three, two, one. You know it's coming, right? I, I was, I've become predictable. Yeah. So I, I think the problem with the with with the the idea of returning to Christian monasticism is it's a very skewed understanding of the church. So what I want to suggest is that what we need in the context of wanting to do really good and healthy evangelism is we need to maintain a good and healthy understanding of the church. In other words, the Bible never suggests in any way that I'm aware of monasticism as a viable alternative. Monasticism is the idea that in order to get away from the sins and temptations of the world, you just hold yourself off in caves or monasteries or if you're a lady, convents, and you live your life there amongst those that want to be similarly religious uh, it's, it's like the gopher illustration from earlier, and just, it's, don't see it anywhere in Scripture. Uh, but I do think that what we need to do is continue to maintain a very healthy version of the church, uh, a reformed understanding of the church, and uh, probably a, a good way to put it is we need to be careful not to sacrifice our doctrine of the church on the altar of evangelism. So the place that we retreat, because we do need a place to retreat, is into the church, and that means a healthy, reformed understanding of the church, solid means of grace, uh, distinctively uh, reformed worship, the beauty of liturgy, all that kind of stuff, uh, word and sacrament. That's our retreat, but that's the Lord's day, that's the church, and then we have to engage the world, Colossians 4, uh, 5, and 6 in some fashion. So that's as far as I'm going to go unless the questioner wants to follow up with probably the hardest question I'll be asked all week. Yes, ma'am? Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, th- I think maybe another way to say it from my view is that part of the problem with American evangelicalism is that the church has become almost indistinguishable from the world. So if you're looking at the church and seeing it as being indistinguishable from the world, monasticism might look pretty cool because it's a pretty radical response to everything being thrown together. This is a radical version of separation. The problem is it's not a biblical one and certainly not one that leaves any place for meaningful evangelism. Okay. 
Yeah, we, yeah. Okay, good. All right, uh, next eye question. Let's get quick eye contact there, Santosh. In addition to prayer, what are some practical, tangible steps that pastors and elders can do to grow our own uh, churches, grow our own and our churches' evangelism? Classes, training, yeah, that's great. Uh, so again, a couple things. Uh, prayer, um, and you know, maybe, so, hmm. I think one of the challenges of a conversation like this is everybody begins to immediately think, okay, this is what we are doing and this is what we're not doing. And especially if you're a pastor, uh, that's, you know, that's a vulnerable spot to be in, right? You might be saying, we're not doing much and we should be doing more. So where do you go with that? Well, I, I think number one, at least for me personally, I, I have said to my church at times, there, there are things we've just not been doing well. Like there have been years... Uh, in fact, recent ones where I've gotten so overtaken by crisis counseling, you know, trying to save families and just really hard stuff or whatever, that we've fallen behind on our goal of regularly visiting the whole church uh, every year, just regular visitation. So I've had to own that to the congregation, uh, other things um, that, you know, once in a while we need to own. And I think it's actually not a bad thing if, you know, a pastor or a session feels convicted to say, you know what, this has just not been our, on our radar uh, we recognize it needs to be, and uh, here are some practical steps that we want to take, beginning with prayer, and and then moving into maybe things like classes. I am a big picture guy in some ways, for as much as I pretend to be kind of a laid-back hippie, I'm really not. I'm kind of OCD, and I like having a plan, and I like thinking in terms of bigger picture planning, so you know, maybe thing you can think about is in the big diet of what we're going through in terms of Sunday school classes and other things, where does evangelism fit? However, you know, you work out your view of the role of lay people in evangelism, where does it fit <clears throat> in the discussions that we have together as a church, uh, and then maybe to plan for doing an evangelism class for a quarter in Sunday school, I think would be uh, a really excellent idea. We do one basically every other year. Um, and then also, you know, frankly, I think a lot of what happens in terms of leadership, pastoral leadership, uh, happens from the pulpit, particularly in terms of prayer. What you are praying to happen in the pastoral prayer is what inevitably should happen in terms of the practical aspects of ministry that are going on in the life of the church. So if you've got a building program, right, you're, you're praying for that building program uh, in your pastoral prayer, which is a way of encouraging God's people to pray, uh, to give, uh, to work towards it. Uh, if you're trying to reach a community right in your backyard, here we pray, and that leads to the church praying and uh, contemplating practical steps to work towards it. Uh, so I think that leadership from the pulpit can happen in a variety of ways. You know, maybe I don't do a lot of sermon series, but I'm impressed going through nearly every book of the Bible how much the theme of evangelism or things related uh, seem to emerge, and punctuating or highlighting uh, those themes in our sermons can be pretty helpful uh, as well. But I do think an on. I really feel like an honest evaluation of ourselves is in order. And I, I say that across the OPC, right? I mean, I'm speaking to the OPC. That could be true for anybody. But just an honest evaluation. Let's, let's just be real honest, right? Uh, this is where we're at. This is what we have done. This is what we haven't done. Uh, these might be some, you know, ideological ways of thinking that have hindered us from, from accomplishing this. And yet here are some ways that we can uh, go forward. I'll use this as an opportunity to say something that I said uh, in, the, in the wee hours of the morning today. I, I've several times made reference to some things in the Dutch Reformed narrative as it relates to this subject, and you know, frankly, part of that's because of the fact that I did my PhD in Holland, and this is who I know. I'm, I'm not Dutch at all, but you know, it was my research language, and I've spent a lot of time in their churches in Holland and Canada, a couple different denominations, and the OPC has a lot of uh, good Dutch influence, and that's great. When I'm in Canada and I give these talks, the dynamic I've kind of noticed is that some of the older people will say, you know what, you're right. We've just not really engaged the world around us. Frankly, we don't know many people that aren't Dutch. I've been told that a hundred times. Uh, then you have, on the other end, you have like kids in their 20s who have a lot of friends that aren't Dutch, but then they go to church every Sunday and everybody they see is Dutch. And so there's this slight tension 
between you know the generations where one generation is saying okay yeah I hear what you're saying and we need to think about that more another generation has like almost no patience for everything to change immediately and uh, here's what I would say to that it's true for the OPC in nuanced ways but I think this is good for us all to uh, just contemplate uh, for a moment and that's when you know when the Dutch immigrants came over they spoke right <laughs> good we're still here Okay, they, they spoke Dutch, and they were fleeing famine, world war. You know, uh, they were coming over here to carve out uh, a life for their families that they couldn't have uh, in, in their motherland. And they made great sacrifices, and they labored in the heat and the snow. They built churches. They built Christian schools. That's just what you did. And they hired people in their church for their business, and, and their world was Dutch. And what, what, uh, this is real important to me. Uh, that was true of everybody else that came from Europe. That was true for people that came from Germany, Italy, uh, Jewish family. Everybody who emigrated did what I just described. Everybody did. They built a version of uh, their former world here. And so the first generation, life was hard. The second generation is bilingual. Life gets a bit easier. Uh, they're standing on the shoulders of their parents. The third generation doesn't speak a lick of Dutch. They have iPads and are kind of spoiled and wonder why all of a sudden, you know, the world hasn't changed in our church as quickly as it has on the TV. And so I'd like to say uh, to both generations is, you know, for the older generation, I think it's good to say, you know what, we'd love to see our church become more multi-ethnic and more evangelistic because that's biblical. And at the same time, don't throw grandma and grandpa under the bus because they didn't do it in that first generation. That's entirely unfair and impatient. Uh, rather, I think what we ought to do is say, we want to see good and biblical things happen in our church, and any boat that turns safely turns slowly. So turn the ship, turn it slowly, and you know we can do the work together in a way that shows honor and deference to an older generation, but also employs the energy and opportunities that are available to a younger generation. And with that, I think we actually could get really excited, not only about doing evangelism, but keeping generations together in the church. And frankly, one thing I wish I had more of in our church is that Dutch Reformed, strong family influence, generational Christianity. Uh, I, I long for that stuff, right? I, my hope is that I will pastor and serve a church faithfully that my grandkids will want to be a part of. And that they'll do better than me. But they'll still want to be a part of bettering uh, this church. And so I say that as a challenge to the younger folks, right? If you see some flaws in what I'm doing and you know, what our grandparents are doing, well, don't bail, but do better. I think they'd want that for you. I don't want my kids to be like me. I want them to sin less love Christ more, and serve more faithfully. And so I think there's a way we can have our cake and eat it too, but it is going to involve some humility, some self-assessment, some self-awareness, and turning the boat slowly. All right? If anybody, I'm going to stop, stop on that. I think that's kind of an important point. Somebody may want to interact with me on that before I move on. Yes, James? Well, that's a good question. I think that the little narrative that I just gave kind of illustrated it as well as I can. So, you know, again, uh, <clears throat> when I visit our friends in Canada, maybe some of you should say this is true here, and we have this conversation, they'll say, you know, what's interesting is I think about my world. I work all week with people that look just like me. I go to church with people that have the same last name as me. Then I go to lunch right after church, and it's all, it's a family reunion every Sunday. There's, there's never a non-Christian or somebody that doesn't look like me in front of me, or almost never, right? I would say that's a cultural thing that has some real strengths to it, right? Strong family. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a kid that comes from the most broken family on the planet. It, it's just messy. I long for the things I just described. I want that for my kids and my grandkids. I really do, right? We want that for our churches. We strive for that. Um, at the same time, there is a little bit of cultural 
inwardness about that that's almost too much, or it is too much, if there's no room for other people. So this is where I think the Dutch apple pie thing is a real silver bullet, because, you know, our kids go play basketball now, and they've got, especially if they're, you know, 20s, youngers, whatever, they've got non, uh, they've got friends from outside their cultural envelope and their family, but they can invite them into the family. If I'm 18 years old, you invited me into one of your families for a meal, and I, I watched this dynamic I just described, I'd think I was watching something from outer space. But it'd make a huge impression, and I would be jealous. And, I, and then if you said church, I actually might come because I'm, now I'm intrigued. Like, okay, what, what, where, where does this thing go? Maybe, maybe not. But my point is, yes, we definitely have certain cultural things that I think can be hindrances to us, but the only way you can really discern that is to try, try to measure these things with Scripture one at a time and talk about them. I will say, too, uh, one particular challenge that I think we have to wrestle with, and this is a tricky one, is, is language. We have an in-house language. There, there are things I can say here, there are jokes I can get away with here that even the kids will get that the rest of the world like, have no clue what I'm talking about. And what I do think is on the Lord's Day, as we're talking about church, uh, there is such a thing as holy language and holy action, right? That's, and that's what we do when we gather together as God's people. But part of the challenge is uh, to take the substance of what we believe and agree upon and take it out to those that speak a different language. If you're expecting them to know your language, uh, you are not condescending graciously. We have to figure out how to speak uh, the language of people that are outside the church and disciple them into the church and the vocabulary of the covenant. The problem I think a lot of churches make is that they're willing to sacrifice everything on the inside to reach those who are outside. What I'm saying is we need to disciple, we need to evangelize and disciple and bring them into our shared vocabulary, not for the sake of just some cultural thing, but ultimately a biblical culture. The Bible is otherworldly. Christianity is otherworldly. The means of grace are otherworldly, and we need to call people out of the world and in, but we need to speak their language to a certain extent when we are in the world before them, and I think that's the point of Colossians 4, right? Let your words be wise, seasoned with grace, making the most of the opportunity. Okay, if I start speaking Dutch right now, you're just going to look at me funny. You've been looking at me funny anyway, okay? Uh, I have to speak your language. The Shorter Catechism uh, was written for the ignorant and uninstructed in what in that time would have been understood to be the vulgar language of the people. This is a big deal to me. Uh, a couple years ago, there was a debate at GA as to whether or not we could update this. is fantastic. This is the OPC. I love this. So the debate was, could we update the language of the Shorter Catechism into more modern English? And there were several speeches uh, by men I respect who said, no, we've got to stick to the King James English because it's beautiful, it's high and lofty. And, you know, the, the sort of catechism is like the front porch, the front door into the confessions, right? And when it was written, the high, beautiful, lofty language of the day was actually not Shakespearean English. What was it? Latin. But they wrote it in what they referred to as the common and vulgar, it's a great phrase, right? vulgar language of the people. They picked the most basic, accessible language they could, and they spoke Reformed confessional theology for the ignorant and uninstructed. And if we don't do that, the world will drive past us and never know we're there. We have to begin engaging folks, I think, outside the world with the vulgar language of the people, but invite them into a new world, which is the world and the story of the church. Sir. right. They're both right. Now we've got to find a way to, to, to increase the outreach and protect the heritage at the same time. Yeah, so I would agree with that. This is my version, I guess, of giving my speech now. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, th there's nothing sacred about 
17th century Shakespearean English. Wow. Wow, okay, I didn't, didn't really see that coming, but I'll take it. I'm not, I'm not, yes, there's beautiful, but that is, that, that to me could be a good example of what James is talking about. If we're going to trap the confession in 400-year-old language, who are you expecting to read that? And, and, okay, maybe you can make your kids do it because they can't get up and leave to go to bed until they hear the catechism. But if you're asking a non-Christian to engage that, there's no other context unless they're a literary uh, major in college. There's no other context where they read that kind of language. And I think the irony is, uh, having, you know, if you look at the old uh, Scottish version, um, the old uh, English introduction with the thing, it uses that language of, uh, of the vulgar, uh, what's the other phrase I use in forgetting? Uh, the common and vulgar language of the people. And then that's, that's, that's embedded in the document itself. So if the, if the language of the people continues to change, I don't know how you would not continue to do that. And, and in fact, uh, when we teach, when we talk to our kids, we always make adjustments to communicate with them. And when you're having a conversation with a teenager here, you'd have a different version of that conversation with a teenager outside the church, even if it's about the same thing. You always adapt when you communicate. That's just the nature of language. Uh, but if we're forcing them to adapt to us rather than being willing to speak language that's clear to them, I just don't understand how you do it. When you teach a language class, you always begin with the palbum vocabulary and you build up. You never start at the top and require that first. I, I think we just need to be good teachers. Uh, we need to be patient teachers, and at least in my view, I think the catechism itself, the very fact that you have a shorter catechism written the way it is, larger, and then confession is a way of recognizing these different categories of where people are at. Why wouldn't we continue to do that? That's exactly what they were doing when they wrote it for the ignorant and, uninst for the ignorant and uninstructed. So if you're going to try to communicate now, last word, I know I'm on my soapbox, but it, if we're trying to reach today, I think this is simple, this is not rocket science. If you're trying to reach today the ignorant and uninstructed, what language do they speak? You can teach them our language, but you have to begin by using theirs. Yes, ma'am. Yes, please. Could you stand up, please, so I can hear you better? What, so, so thank you for saying that. So when I made my speech, which was really brilliant, persuaded at least two people five years ago. Actually, I did have a guy come up and tell me it changed his vote. Um, anyway. What, okay, you know, we're at the end of the week, and I need to just measure some things that I say so I don't run ahead of myself. Sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel like we're the last horse in the race on purpose. And I don't thank you, that's, I'll take it, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Like we watch and study, everyone else will come out, you know, why, why, why let people... Why not be the ones to take the, let me try to state it positively, why not be the ones to take the high ground and lead the way on developing materials that are effective rather than waiting till somebody else does it and we simply critique what they did wrong and then we just put out the one from 400 years ago again. I don't get it. I mean, I, I see some flaws with the New City Catechism, I, but, but where are, okay, so if there are flaws in it, so where might you find the most able people, if somebody's going to update the Shorter Catechism, where might you find the most able people to do that, if not in the OPC? Because we love it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm actually, I'm excited about that. Like, this will help me. When I try to reach across the neighborhoods where I live and do evangelism, the way we're talking about doing it, uh, this document's really helpful, but take, taking this, listen, take, taking Shakespearean English into the hood be, by my church is a joke. It's, it's almost insulting. Really, it's, it's almost insulting uh, to, to come with something that's so foreign and to try to use it as a teaching tool and immediately you begin explaining it in language that's more accessible, by the way, to the people that you're trying to get to get it. So why not do it in the document itself and make the thing... Easier, yes, sir. I was going to say, I think this is a conversation that should continue throughout the whole Q&A. So okay, all right. Not to jump off, but they can come to you separately if you choose to come. What's her fault? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I only have three. No, I'm going to move on. I, I appreciate this discussion, and I'm delighted that we have uh, a committee working on it. I, I hope we produce something good that will make it easier for church planners uh, to bring people from outside the OPC in. If, in God's providence, uh, 17th century English is a way to do that, I'll submit. <laughs> what advice do you have for lay people as they try and engage spontaneous evangelism Doing things in good order can hinder someone from grabbing a cooler of Coke and doing a Coke and a question event at a local college without the blessings or input from the session. That's a good question. So I, here, here's what I'm hoping for. I want all of us as members of the church to be uh, happily submissive to our sessions. I'm not looking to lead a revolution here. You're going down. Well, he's, he's taking a slow dive. <laughs> All right, um, I, I'm not looking to lead a revolution here, and I think it'd be regrettable to have folks kind of go home and, you know, become like obstinate and pushy with their sessions. That's, that's not what I'm hoping for at all. And at the same time, I am hoping that pastors and sessions will lead here and that they'll welcome the conversation. Let, let's talk about it. How can we do this together and that session can give good uh, spiritual leadership and input and that members can come up with creative ways to embody uh, the things that we're talking about? Um, you know, so <clears throat> I'm not sure if I'm answering the question well enough. I'll stop there. Actually, I like what I thought. Say, say I like what I just said there, but that doesn't sound right. Um, that's my answer. If somebody wants to follow up on it, yes, Mr. Price. Okay, stand up so I can hear you. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, I get it. So, number one, I think it's always good. Maybe you don't need permission, but you, I'm sure you would welcome input and prayer and encouragement, right? Um, and secondly, I do think we, we would want to get permission to do things that publicly represent our church. Like if you're saying we're out here on behalf of Grace OPC, whatever, um, you know, that kind of stuff. I actually, I think, I think you do uh, want to have the session's uh, approval for things like that. But I would also think this could be a great example of a welcome conversation. Like, you know, you as members of the church can communicate with your sessions, right? You can send a letter saying, hey, we'd like to do this little outreach thing in a you know, nearby college and wanted to get your input for it. We welcome any ideas or whatever. Uh, I w I, our elders would love a letter like that. Maybe other elders, depending on what you're trying to propose, may have different uh, takes on it. Um, but that is the way I would suggest the dialogue could go. And beyond that, you know, kind of hard to micromanage hypotheticals. But I would say it, it's a good thing to ask and inquire, to at least make them, you know, aware that you're going to uh, do this. Um, you know, talking to a lady in the grocery store, of course, if you're talking about something else. But I'll give you a good example, EE. Uh, we have an evangelism committee in our church. Eight people are on it. Uh, one guy came to Christ through EE. I'm not a big EE fan. I, there are a couple little things about it I just am not okay with. Uh, my session's persuaded of the same view. We have a guy on our committee who would love to see us do EE. I'd prefer for them not to go out and put covenant stickers on EE stuff. And, you know, that's not our paradigm per se. Right? But that doesn't mean there can't be a paradigm. So I think this is a great place for me to pastor and for them uh, to still uh, get to do something. So, okay, if, if this is big. I'm really glad this came up. Okay? What I think is really regrettable is if all we did as a session is say, no, we don't approve of that paradigm. I don't want us to be a church, a denomination, that simply says this is what we are not about. 
I think you have to land the plane on what we are about. And so, you know, if you're saying, let's do EE, and I say, no, that's not the one, what's a very fair response? Right. What can or should we do? And I, I think pastors and sessions need to feel the burden of that. What can and should we do? I, I get it. There are some problems with EE. Give me something better. And we need to work towards that something better so that we're actually working together towards doing uh, things that we think are, are biblical. Uh, so I think there's a way that bo- we should all be able to have our cake and eat it too here and actually find joy in the idea of working and laboring together. You know, so that, uh, we can get excited about this. This doesn't have to be uh, a contentious thing. I think they actually can be really excited if we approach it patiently, prayerfully, and humbly. So thank you for the very good question. Yes, sir, Larry? Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. <clears throat> Let me even follow up on something I said a minute ago. I'll give you some insider information. Uh, so I have the privilege of serving our denominational committee for church planning, and one of the things we've kind of resolved is when we approve groups that want to plan a church, they need to tell us what they are going to do. When we approve a guy as a church planner, he needs to tell us what he is hoping to do. So don't tell me about the three programs that are out there that are too broadly evangelical to be good and stop there. Like, that's a buzzkill. Like, not going a whole lot further there. Tell me what you're going to do as a group. You want to start an OPC? That's great. Is it just because you all believe that homeschooling is the only way and everybody else is going to hell? (laughs) We might have a problem here. Uh, We might actually need to talk about how we are going to reach people. I I homeschool my kids. I love homeschooling. It's great. It's not a reason to plant a church. It's It's not an identity. The gospel is our identity. Homeschooling is an educational choice. Uh, but we've planted churches in the past that have these sort of hyphenated identities and no plan for outreach and evangelism. And we wonder why those churches wax and wane. And so what we're saying now is, it's fine if you have those identity things, but tell us how you are going to do outreach positively. Don't just tell me what you're not going to do, and don't tell me your only real source of identity, something that's not even in the confession as a requirement. Right? Uh, tell us where the gospel uh, is going to flow from this group, flow from this man's ministry, and now you're giving us something to get excited about and push four years of a whole lot of money uh, behind. And I'm actually, I'm really excited about this dynamic. Like, we're willing to say no because we want to say yes. I saw, is it Lydia? Oh. So I have to tell a quick story before she asks her question. She's broken my heart on this trip. She said something really wonderful after uh, one of the messages a couple of evenings ago, and I said, what's your name? She said, Lydia. I'm like, where do you go to church? Harvest. I'm like, I know your family. Really? You've met them? I've known their family for like ever. I just left here 17 years ago, and she's 14, and so now it's just making me feel like I'm a thousand. So anyway, what's your question, Lydia? Yeah, 
Very good question. So the coconut question thing, we would just put out a sign, coolers there, have a couple college kids, have somebody standing behind the table, cokes and you know bottles of water lined up. People walk by, and uh, a lot of times they'll actually ask you, "What do you? What, what is this?" And you'll say, "Well, uh, we're here from this church, and we were inviting people to ask us one question about God or the Bible. And if you do, we'll give you a free coke and a bottle or a bottle of water while we uh, talk for a few minutes. You can leave whenever you want." No, I'm not interested. Out of here. All right. Well, keep my coke. <laughs> a lot of times they'll stop and engage. You know, a lot of times the conversations don't go anywhere. People have come to church. I, isn't that fun? I mean, what, what's really cool? Like, someone's going to call me in a few months and say, you know what, I did one of the crazy things you suggested. I thought you were nuts. You probably are, but we did it anyway. And somebody came to church, and they're here. And some of us got to a church because of, you know, little stuff like that. But I think, Lydia, the other side of it, though, is when you're talking to people, Try to communicate their language. Like if I'm talking to you, it would be different than the way I would talk, have a conversation maybe with Pastor Pontier because you're different people in different stages of life. Uh, you know your friends and you speak your friends' language better than I do. So you have a real up. This is why it's so important to me that the whole church engage this idea because you are in places speaking a language, doing activities that I'm not ever going to get anywhere near. You guys are the hands and feet of everything that I'm describing. Everybody is, young and old. But you have a particular language that's you, and if I'm talking to you, I should speak it. And when you're with your friends, you're able to communicate with them in certain ways, right? That's all I'm encouraging, which means in a certain sense, listening and knowing the people that you're talking to, and at the end of the day, at least trying our best to speak a language they can understand. That's the key, right? If, if I ask a person, are you aware of your eschatological destiny? Mm, are you? <laughs> they might not get that, Okay. Are you aware that, that people who don't believe in Christ will at one point become fully self-conscious epistemological devils? Right. But that was English. Or you can begin to quote flowery 17th century. Okay, I'm not going to do that again. All right. Next question. Oh, there's several. Just, uh, I'll start with Justice and we'll just go straight to the back. So, okay, James? Justice, you first, sir. Oh, he wrote his out. I'm nervous. Go ahead. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'll probably get kicked out after this. Um, so I appreciate you saving it for the end. It, it's a hard question. I would say a few things about it. Number one, I think we all have to be aware of our limitations. Like when I became a new Christian, I came out of a party scene, and I just couldn't go back and be salt and light in that scene. I just couldn't. They would evangelize me, and I would give in. It just, I just couldn't be there. You know, over time, I think I've become more self-aware of my limitations. I feel like I can, like for instance, drink alcohol in moderation and draw a line. Uh, but I know a lot of people that don't draw those lines very well and safely and wisely, so I want to be real, real cautious there. And I think this is a good question for pastors and you know, elders, parents to be engaged in. Uh, you know, the party scene in college, I just, that's a tough one for me to see as a place where you're actually going to accomplish a whole lot evangelistically. Um, in my view, it'd be tough for me to imagine seeing that as a place where I'm going to go and hang out with people, you know, that are getting stupid drunk and trying to find out what can happen after that and to try to evangelism. There are probably different contexts to find those people. And, you know, again, that'd be a great example of a place where uh, I think we can easily become the evangelized and I'd have a lot of concern about the possibility of that happening. <clears throat> you know, I know pastors who do, uh, PCA pastor, by the way, but you know, beer in a Bible kind of deal where he'll literally go to a bar, break out a Bible, sit there, and, you know, drink 
a beer or two very slowly and try to engage people. And, you know, there's something about that that's kind of creative sounding. And also there's a little warning flag that goes up there, right? Uh, so I, I, I would say part of it is know yourself. You know, the, the prophet Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limitations. And I think there's really something true to that because otherwise we get swallowed up in the name of what appears to be good intentions. And there are a lot of, this, those college kids will be in class the next day hungover and probably needing some help with a few things. Maybe that might be the better opportunity. You have to draw those lines, I think, pretty carefully. Okay, Tim and then James. It's probably shamelessly self-promoting to mention my, I have a book on it. Um, Preaching Christ in the Old Testament and Postmodern Context is the subject of it. And a handful of lay people have actually said it was kind of readable. And it gets into what I think are the three main points of it. I didn't pay him to do this, by the way. Um, but I'll share any proceeds that come. Uh, that go to support uh, needy children, including my own. Someone else asks us. A postmodern context. That's not the title of the book, but it's the subject of the book. The subject of it is the drama of preaching, participating with God in the history of redemption. Anyway, but there's a lot of other stuff. That is the title. Yeah, uh, Al Mohler has a great little book, He Is Not Silent. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, has a large volume on the gagging of God that's a bit more sophisticated but very thorough. Um, there's a, if you sent me an email, I could probably rattle off a few more sources if I were sitting in my library. Part of the challenge is when you get into a book on postmodernism, it's hard to keep that simple, right? Because you're talking about <clears throat> a very complicated intellectual narrative that's as well-defined as a jellyfish. What happens when you squeeze a jellyfish? It moves, and it constantly changes shape. And that's the problem with postmodernism is it constantly changes shape and it stings. But there is some good stuff out there uh, on it. There's another book, I think, by Scott Oliphant from West Philly uh, that could be helpful as well. But I would say, actually, for what it's worth, here's, here's something parents may need to wrestle with a little bit. I think part of the trick of this conversation is kind of like, when do you have your first beer? Do you have it when you're 21 with your dad and your pastor, and it's a really cool thing? Do you have it for the first time ever uh, with your friends at college? Uh, and your parents aren't around, it's the context of a party, do you have it when you're 12 and you steal it out of your mom's liquor cabinet when she's at work? Honestly, I mean, so, you know, parents, I mean, this is a good thing for you. I'm not going to try to micromanage how you do it, but just to say a good question is how, how do you <clears throat> introduce some of the things that you know your kids are getting exposed to <clears throat> the right way so that they can have an informed introduction rather than a radical and vulnerable one? And I think that's true. So music, for instance, if, if I were trying to, well, I am. As I'm studying the postmodern mind, music is one of the best things to do. So, for instance, I, I work out to Metallica. It's true. That's right. Thank you. Nice. Nice, my brother. Okay, my last friend here. Uh, I, I read to classical music. But when I work out, I, I listen to some kind of edgy stuff. This is funny. I listen to some edgy stuff, and I actually pay attention to the lyrics. It's really interesting to pay attention to what they say. And going back to Lydia's question, when I'm trying to evangelize people at times, I actually will quote from music. Like, let's talk about this line in a song that everybody knows. I know they know it. They've thought about it. Why do you think they say that? You know, Kurt Cobain wrote all this edgy, uh, hard-edged music, and then he killed himself. You can put some things together there. Music tells a story. Uh, it tells a theology and a worldview. And really, one of the easiest ways to get into the mind of postmodernism is to listen to some of the music that's coming out now. Now, parents are thinking, well, I don't want to listen to that, and I don't want my kids listening to it. But you know what? They're going to hear it as soon as they leave the house. Somebody's going to play it. Let's not be that naive. And at the end of the day, no one can have a reformed introduction. Use it as a way to say, let's talk about what this is saying and how we can use it in evangelism. So 
you know, it's just a suggestion, but maybe a vulnerable one. James? Oh, I'm sorry, James one on the back wall? Back row? Why do I keep calling you James? I'm sorry. Well, you called my wife Hannah, so we're even. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, it's a really great question, Jim. Um, <laughs> uh, passionate, Christ-centered preaching. Nothing but the gospel saves and nothing but the gospel motivates. I need to hear the gospel every week by, for myself, and I'm very persuaded my church, my people need to hear the gospel every week for themselves, and that is, I think, the only thing that really warms the fire of our hearts, and also comforts our hearts, right? And I'd also say, uh, since you gave me an opportunity here, uh, you know, in our church, we have non-Christians in attendance every single week. Every single week. And so I truly feel the sense of, I believe in preaching the gospel every Sunday and think the text makes it pretty easy to do that. Uh, but I also have this sense that, you know, the same gospel that I'm preaching to my people uh, is uh, the evangelistic gospel that the non-Christian in our midst needs to hear as well. So I kind of get a buy one, get one free there. But ultimately, to your question, uh, I would say passionate. Not just trite, predictable, cliche, but passionate, Christ-centered preaching that warms the heart is, I think, what will warm the fire of evangelism as well. One last question for this gentleman. He had his hand up, and then this will be, this is the end. When you're what? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I'm going to give you a deep theological, very precise answer. I don't know. Well, I'm not entirely. I'm just being honest. I'm not entirely sure when Paul says out of season. I think, but I'm not. You know, maybe another pastor here wants to take it. Uh, I think what he's saying is that there are times when we proclaim the gospel and it bears visible fruit in season and there are times we proclaim the gospel and it just seems like we're scattering seed on hard ground but the point of that parable right is Jesus was sower sowing on all this ground and we're sharing the gospel in season when it's fruitful but also out of season when it appears not to be uh, there there's a there's a nice little quote here from a uh, old uh, Puritan guy um, if I can find it super quickly uh, he, well, he, he talks about, oh, goodness, Lord, help me find it real quick. He talks about praying that the Lord will prosper our ministry, that he might even uh, give us souls in such a way that we would see genuine fruitfulness from our ministry, and that there are seasons we go through when we don't, and we should cry out to God asking him uh, for more grace and more fruitfulness in our ministry. Uh, I, I think, it, okay, here it is, from Arch, Archibald Alexander. Uh, it's not, well, you know what I mean. Uh, he's not that old. Be much concerned about the success of your ministry. Cry mightily to God that He would follow your labors with His blessing and give you precious souls for your hire. Be a great example of old language. That was really beautiful, but do you actually, I mean, it's almost hard to understand, right? That He would give you precious souls for your hire and as seals of your mission. Desire success and expect it. Do not be elated with prosperity and preaching or depressed when straightened, which I think He means. Uh, when you don't see fruitfulness. Again, it's that old English that we've been talking about. But I think his point is we should desire success, we should pray for success, but we should not give up when we don't see it. Pray and preach in season. Pray and preach out of season. Be salt and light with your friends and your college you know, dorm. Maybe you'll see something wonderful happen, but if you don't, don't give up. Sometimes the farmer farms for a long time, goes even through a rough season, blight, whatever can happen, and then we see great seasons and we rejoice with the harvest. And I think that's what we're being encouraged to do here is to persevere and entrust ourselves to the Lord of the harvest. It's his field. It's 
his fruit. We just get the joy of picking the flowers as they come. So I'm going to pray, and we'll be done. Lord, it is true that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we've reflected a lot this week now on evangelism, and I've talked a lot. And I'm mindful of the proverb that says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And so, Lord, in any way or place in which I have either sinned or spoken unhelpfully or unbiblically, I pray that these, my friends, might quickly forget whatever it was that I said that was unhelpful or inconsistent with your word. Lord, if any things were consistent with your word and helpful, Lord, might we reflect on these things? Might they stick to our hearts and minds? Might they compel us uh, to want to pray together as individuals, as families, and even uh, with people from our church uh, to talk together uh, with our, our elders and pastors and deacons and just uh, members in the body about how we can be faithful salt and light. Uh, Lord, some of our churches are prospering. Some of them are really struggling. Some of us are greatly encouraged. Some of us uh, struggle uh, with a sense of frustration or even uh, depressed at the lack of fruit that we see. We pray, O Lord, that you, who are the Lord of the harvest, would work resurrection miracles in the hearts of unbelievers, that our churches might be encouraged, that they might be strengthened, that we might see the gospel at work, that we might have even greater reason to thank you. Lord, even if we should continue to see seasons in which we labor diligently, but don't see the fruit for which we hope, we ask, Lord, that you help us to trust you and to remember that there are certainly seasons in the life of your church, uh, seasons and waves in the way in which we see uh, good fruit from our labors. We pray, Lord, young and old, that you'd help us all to contemplate what is our part in this story? Where do we fit in this unfolding drama by which you intend to glorify your name and the salvation of the nations? We thank you, Lord, that you were pleased to save us. Uh, we thank you that many of us don't ever remember not being a part of the visible church. We don't even remember a time when we did not know and love the Lord Jesus. And even if that love is imperfectly imperfect, we thank you, O oh Lord, for what you've done in our lives. We pray for our families. We pray for our churches. We pray for our pastors who, in just a couple days, have to preach and bear the burden upon their shoulders. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. We ask, Lord, that in time to come we'd be able to look back and see the great things that you have done, how you have blessed and prospered us in so many ways. To our God be the glory. Through Christ our Savior, amen. And to you, thank you.